0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that we can come today to be refreshed by your word, to learn from your word how we are to think about uh, the creation that you have made, how you have uh, your intentions for the human race, and how you have made us, to fulfill a mission, a purpose, a destiny. And, Father, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as new creatures in Christ, have the opportunity because of redemption, because of regeneration, to recover from the consequences of sin to some degree, to go back to pursue that original destiny that you designed for us. And that is a destiny that was... Uh, Designed to be fulfilled by men and women within the framework of marriage as one man, one woman come together, united together, uh, before you for the purpose of serving you. And as we go through the passages of scripture related to the, uh, related to marriage, related to the roles of men and women within marriage and the family, we understand that this is the core element within any society, within any culture, within any nation. And, as the so goes the family, so goes the nation, so goes the marriage, so goes the family, so goes the nation. And so, Father, we pray that there would be a uh, true realization of the distinctiveness of what you have taught us and revealed to us in your word, that it is distinct from the caricature presented by the world against Christianity, and it is often distinct from our own misconceptions about what your word says. Help us to clearly understand what you have revealed to us that we may fulfill our roles, our mission, and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by turning to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This is where I ended last week, but I want to go back and spend a little time thinking about what Paul says here related to the roles the distinctions of different members of the congregation he addresses four different groups he addresses older women older men younger women and younger younger men and in this we see again the the fact that the areas that he focuses on are not really that distinct from general areas of of behavior of thinking Of uh, virtue that he focuses on for every single believer. There are some distinctions because as we go through different seasons of life, there are different problems, different temptations that do present themselves. This study is the outworking of our study in Colossians chapter 3, and we have been looking at the uh overall structure of the commands that Paul gives in 3:18 uh, down into the uh, towards the end of the third chapter and into the fourth chapter specifically dealing with the roles and structures of those within a household that would include in the first century the slaves that would be included within the house so he addresses the wives then the husbands then the children then the fathers then the slaves and then uh, than the masters. The mandates that we have here are stated rather uh, briefly compared to how they are developed in other passages, so I'm taking the time to give us a, uh, a look at comparative passages, parallel passages, so that we can have a full understanding of what the Word teaches in these areas, because we live in a world, as I've pointed out in the past, where often these verses have been taken out of context. Uh, Sadly, by many Christians, they've been taken out of context. They've been misused, misapplied, uh, sometimes used to justify uh, wrong, sinful, arrogant behavior on the part of uh, men or on the part of women. They've been used in anger to attack the other one who doesn't seem to be doing what the uh, one thinks they should be doing and this has led to much misunderstanding. Not only that, there are those outside of the church who use this to uh, caricature the Christian position into some sort of antiquated, antediluvian uh, position that is hostile to, Uh, equality that seeks to keep women uh, subservient to men, and many other things. And this is just not what the Bible teaches. So we're continuing to look at what the Bible does indeed teach. The passage in Colossians 3.18 reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands. I think that's important that we have in several passages that uh, qualification, that they are to submit to their own husbands. And, uh, that is, is fitting in the Lord. And that again qualifies this that, that if a woman is in a marriage where the husband tells her to do things that are dishonest, that are unethical, that violate the commands of Scripture, then she should not obey him because it would not be fitting in the Lord. Uh, I've pointed out in the past that the reason that wives are addressed in terms of the issue of submission goes all the way back to the judgment of God on Eve and women in general that they would have a desire to control in a wrong way to control their husbands. Husbands have a different problem, and so uh, the mandate addressed to them is that they are to love their wives and do not be bitter to them. Now, in Ephesians, there's an expansion on that, which we will look at next week. And then children are to obey their parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Ultimately, what we see in all of these mandates is that the issue in obedience and submission to someone else is never based on the character, the quality, the personality of the person we're obeying it's always related back to the to to our service to god and it's always based upon the fact that within the marriage and within the home there is to be a visible testimony of the kind of relationship that we as individual individual believers have towards the lord jesus christ as we've looked at the commands related to wives we see that wives are not commanded to love their husbands, but at the end of Ephesians uh, 5, they're commanded to respect and to honor uh, their husbands. This indicates, again, that there is a response on the part of women, that part of the way God made the soul of women is to be responders to their husband. And the male as male was created to be the leader, the responsible leader of the human race. We saw that in our study of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Respect is a term that emphasizes the fact that the wife should give uh, deference to the wishes of the husband. She uh, recognizes she is part of a team and doesn't mean that she doesn't ever question or discuss Uh, things with with the husband, and husbands, if they have any sense of humility or respect, uh, would realize that often their wives have perspectives on things that they need to listen to and that they are perhaps uh, not aware of or not sensitive to, and often their wives give them a good, honest uh, appreciation for things. But this is something that builds together over time Within a marriage and within a, uh, a relationship. And it's based upon uh, communication, having a good, honest, open communication between the husband and the wife. Now we live in an age today where, uh, as a result of modern, the modern feminist radical feminist movement that came up in the 60s, which had its precedence in feminist movements that originated in the U.S. back in the 19th century and at various times sort of uh, reactivated itself over the last century or century and a half. And in some cases, we see there are some aspects of that. There was a justification because there was a mentality on the part of males in society that was not biblical. Often it was abusive. Often it was uh, uh, tyrannical towards women. Often it limited the role and responsibility of wives and women in a way that was not consistent with Scripture. And as a result of that, there were uh, numerous breakdowns that occurred within uh, within the social structure uh, of the United States. When we look at uh, this concept of submission and the concept of love and authority or leadership, as I often emphasize it in relation to the role of the husband, I want to point out two things. Uh, first of all, that when that tyranny is really the emphasis on authority apart from love, a biblical view of love is uh, what I mean there. That when there is not a biblical view, of, of love which is grounded upon uh, humility on the part of the one loving as well as virtue and integrity, then authority without love is uh, tyranny and that's not what the Scripture is emphasizing. On the other side with a husband, because men can go in one, tend to go in one of these two directions, one is uh, uh, treating their authority in a tyrannical manner, the other is becoming passive, and passivity is just a pseudo-love, it's a false concept of love, that functions without authority. And that creates a leadership vacuum. And what has often happened when men abdicate their leadership responsibilities within the home is that women have felt that in order for the home to survive, for the children to be properly trained, for discipline to be in the home, that they need to move into that vacuum and basically take over the leadership authority position from a uh, passive male who is uh, divorced from his role in the home or absent from the home. And that leads to uh, various uh, problems in role reversal and in modeling uh, appropriate behavior and role distinction to the children, and over a course of a couple of generations, this leads to the collapse of the home and collapse of the of marriage within that particular uh, society. The only thing that can reverse this is for men and women to come to understand their God-given role and responsibility as new creatures in Christ because it's only as that sin nature trend that we have towards self-absorption and arrogance is that can be overcome by men and women within the marriage then we can see a true true rehabilitation of marriage within a, a culture or within a society. One other thing that I've pointed out as we've gone through these passages is that the Marriage relationship, the role of the wife, the role of the husband, especially as they're identified in Ephesians, is often related to their, uh, their, under, their response to the authority of Jesus Christ. So that, uh, ladies, your response to your husband, in fact, your response to men in your life often says a lot about how you respond to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. The same thing is true of men. How you exercise leadership and authority in the home often says a lot about how you understand the leadership and the authority of Jesus Christ over you and how you respond uh, to his uh, authority. You're in, within a marriage. That relationship between husband and wife is a relationship that should mirror the gospel that is a testimony and witness uh, to the gospel and the love of God the Father uh, as displayed through uh, Jesus Christ uh, within the home. So the marriage itself is a witness, a testimony to both human beings as well as uh, to the angels. This means that for uh women their attitude to the uh gospel of correlates to their relationships with men it is has an impact on for young women this should impact uh you know your relationship with young men or boys what you send to young boys in terms of text messages what you post on facebook pages uh you need as parents they need to oversee and train their children in this way because as they are young in their preteen years they begin to establish patterns of relationship to the opposite sex that uh, that correlate to their relationship to God and their uh testimony their personal understanding of of the uh, gospel and often that witness in the home that on the part of both men and women says more about your understanding of the gospel than your ability to articulate the gospel or cite the right verses or state the right theology because it is the implementation of the understanding of the right theology within your, uh, your relationship. So we, it's crucial the scripture teaches to understand how uh, the the biblical view of the role of husbands and wives relates to the gospel and this, uh, this testimony. And it's not just women, I mean, it's not just wives and husbands, but it also applies to single men and single women in your relationships with members of the opposite sex. And on that basis, I want to go back to the passage that I ended with last time in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The key part is from verse 3 down to verse 5, but I want to look at the whole framework uh, this this morning just a little bit. Paul is addressing Titus. Titus was a protege of Paul's. He was trained like Timothy by Paul to be a pastor and then was sent out on various pastoral missions to churches, congregations that Paul had founded during his uh, missionary journeys. And they were assigned various tasks and often they were sent to solve problems in congregations where they were having a number of different uh, personal problems, relational problems within the congregation, spiritual problems, carnality problems, doctrinal problems. And so these were young men. Paul had trained and trusted to be able to carry out these particular missions that is why they are called the pastoral epistles first Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus give us a tremendous insight into uh, into the, how Paul viewed the practical outworkings of the pastoral ministry this strongly impacts a pastor's view of how, and a church's view of how the ministry functions on a day-to-day basis, what the priorities are, what's emphasized, what's de-emphasized. This is what comes under the category of a term called philosophy of ministry. Now, that may be a new term for some of you. Some people have heard me say that and go, well, what exactly is philosophy of ministry? Philosophy of ministry affects the kind of music you sing, the proportion of time usage in a service, how much time the pastor spends studying, how much time he spends counseling, how much time he spends doing administrative things. All of those aspects are practical aspects of the pastoral ministry. And these are uh, impacted or uh, are taught, many things are taught in these pastoral epistles. This coming year in March, this is the focus of the Chafer Conference, is on the philosophy of ministry, helping pastors and uh, congregants, believers, understand what the Bible teaches in terms of a framework for a philosophy of ministry. It doesn't mean that every church needs to be a rubber stamp of another church because every church has a different personality based on the people within that congregation, and they are at different places in their spiritual growth. We have a congregation where there's a large number of people here who have been under very solid, sound Bible teaching for... Many, many years, many decades in some cases, and that is very different from, for example, a church I pastored in Irving, Texas, 20 years ago, where nearly everybody in the congregation was under the age of 35, and many of them had been saved less than five years and so the level of teaching to a congregation that has barely a thimbleful's worth of knowledge of the Bible is a, going to be different from a congregation that's uh, that's more mature because you're dealing with a different spiritual age group. There are a lot of other factors that go into that, but it's important to lay down the biblical exegetical Theological Foundation for a Philosophy of Ministry, and then work out the, some of those practical uh, a- implications and applications. That's why we're uh, focusing on that this year. Many churches have problems today, not because they have a wrong doctrinal statement. In fact, you can go to a thousand different Bible churches, they will ha- have almost an identical doctrinal statement, and, that, and it's great. But how they what how they do what they do on Sunday morning during the week is radically different. And it doesn't have to do with the doctrine. It has to do with how they understand their purpose and function and priorities in the pastoral ministry, which is their philosophy of ministry. So it's important for us for Chafer Seminary as a seminary to have a, a well crafted uh uh statement and articulation of a biblically grounded philosophy of ministry uh, relating to a number of different areas. So, And part of that is what we see here in Titus chapter 2. In Titus 2, Paul spends 10 verses talking about the role of different groups of people within the congregation. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women and how they, just providing a framework for how they are to intersect, interconnect, and relate to one another within the congregation. So he's addressing Titus as the pastor of this congregation in Crete, and he is telling him the kinds of things that he needs to focus on as a pastor. So in the first verse we read, but as for you, that is Paul directly speaking to Titus, As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. The verb there that is translated speak is a word that has to do with the articulation of the spoken word as opposed to the written word. In this context, it would have to do with teaching and instruction, and that comes as emphasized by the last word, uh... doctrine there in this particular verse it's a present imperative which means that this is something that is to be an ongoing continuous focus in the ministry of a pastor this is a priority he but it's an aorist tense would emphasize as a priority as if that wasn't what he was doing the present imperative is stating this is to be the standard operating procedure for you as a pastor to speak that which is proper or fitting, appropriate for sound doctrine. Now, the word that is translated sound is a Greek word that has as its literal meaning the idea of physical health, that which promotes physical health as opposed to disease. And it is used metaphorically by Paul and distinctively so in the pastoral epistles to relate to that which produces spiritual health, soundness in the spiritual life. And so he says you are to produce, you are to speak uh, sound or that the doctrine, the teaching that will produce the, a healthy spiritual life, on the part of the believers in the congregation, and thus a congregation that has a healthy or sound uh, spiritual life. So this is part of that. The sentence begins, speak the things which are appropriate, which are fitting, which are proper for healthy spiritual instruction. And then he gives... Uh, four areas of application related to these four different groups of people. The first are the older men. And the older men, and the, w- the way the uh, New King James translates it, similar to the Old King James, is that they are to be sober. Now that is not really a good uh, translation in terms of the modern way in which we use the word sober. This isn't talking about uh, alcoholic temperance. This is talking about a mental attitude that is balanced, a mental attitude that is well-informed, a mental attitude that has led to maturity, wisdom, and self-control. So that's the idea of sober. It is the older men should be Self control. They should exhibit wisdom because they have lived for several decades and gone through a number of life experiences and they have learned a lot of of, uh, biblical instruction. So they are to exhibit self control and wisdom in their life. Objective thinking is another aspect of someone who is. Uh, soph- sophron, that's the root word. It has, there's some different uh, endings that are applied to that that indicate different uh, aspects, but it basically has that idea of clear, objective, uh, wise thinking. So they're to be so- sober, and secondly, they are to be uh, reverent. They are to be reverent. They are to uh have a be serious about their spiritual life and they are to be pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Uh, then they are to be temperate. This is another word that emphasizes self-control and wisdom and a lack of uh of balance in their life. They are not to be uh devoted to anything that leads them to some sort of uh, unhealthy behavior in any in any particular direction. And then it says they are to be sound in faith, and this is a, another form of that word used for sound doctrine, uh, Huguiano here, and it is they are to be sound in three areas, in their faith, that refers to what they believe, their doctrine, they are to be sound in love, and here the word is agape, they are to be, have grown to maturity, in in, uh, Christian love, and then in hupomone, in endurance. And I think that one of the tests that comes to those who are maturing in their life as they get past that point of having uh, children in the home, when they get to a point where they are uh, perhaps less focused on uh, building their reputation, building their character, I've seen this many times in families that once the kids are grown and out of the house, then we're, that sense of living a life as a, uh, as sort of a testimony, as, uh, as a, a, an example for the family sort of goes, and who knows what happens. They, they quit enduring and persevering in the Christian life. Uh, one time uh, many years ago I had a leader in my church whose father had uh, come to move in with them. He was now in his late 70s. And uh, I was talking with uh, this man one day, and he said, you know, I can't understand it. My dad was always a deacon or elder in the churches where I grew up. He was just a model of Christian behavior. And after my mother died, uh, he just turned into a womanizer. He no longer, as an older man, said, well, you know, I've lived my Christian life. Now I'm going to sow a few wild oats. Uh, he failed to persevere. This is a temp- temptation, an area of testing that comes to those who are older. They get a sense that somehow maybe I missed out on something. Uh, I'm not uh, living my life an example for my kids or grandkids anymore. They live somewhere else, so I can just go out and do whatever I, uh, whatever I want to. So there should be, an, uh, there's, should be healthy or sound in endurance in their doctrine, in their love, that is their uh, application of doctrine in their relationships and in endurance and perseverance. Then in verse 3, we come to older women, the older women likewise. So there is an additional set of commands towards older women, but like older men, they are to be uh, reverent in their behavior. Now, this is a Different word for uh, reverence here than the word used related to men, but it has the same uh, implication. it has the idea of practicing their spiritual life, whereas the word related to the men has to do with their menta- a little bit more with their mentality uh thinking in terms of their uh, serious devotion to their spiritual life this is has to do more with their uh, the application of that uh, spiritual life they should be reverent in behavior. This is not talking about some sort of self righteous behavior or walking around uh, with a certain pose or certain attitude, but this this simply means that they 're f- still focused on their spiritual life and spiritual growth second they 're not slanderers it 's easy for anyone to get involved in gossip or slander or running someone down and it can particularly be true I think of certain groups it's not limited to older women but older women, widows who just get together uh, it can easily turn to uh, some form of gossip often gossip is masked in Christian circles by prayer requests Well, we need to pray for so and so in their marriage because you know what their husband's doing and we need to pray for them and now uh, you wrap your gossip in, in some sort of cloak of uh, holiness because it's a prayer request. Well, older women are warned against that because apparently the scriptures see that as a particular area of weakness. And then third, not given too much wine. That's an interesting addition there that apparently uh, older women might have a tendency to uh, drink too much wine to deal with whatever the problems are that may be coming their way due to uh, the aging factor. So they are not to be given too much wine. doesn't say they shouldn't drink wine. It just means they need to make sure they don't drink too much wine. So they are not given too much wine. And then last, they're teachers of good things. And I pointed this out last time, that it's not talking about being a teacher of the word but older women are to help the younger women learn how to deal with the issues and problems and adversities of life. There's a framework within the body of Christ where those who have lived through the problems of of, uh, of maturity, of growth, of raising children, of dealing with problem wives or problem husbands, that they can go to those who have learned and have gone through there To get some help and advice. Often the young, 20 somethings, get married and they encounter situations in their marriage that they never saw in their own home life. And it seems really odd or strange to them. They have no idea what to do or how to handle it. And they need a mature Christian, uh, older Christian woman that they can go to in confidence who can advise them and counsel them. Now, some churches set this up as a formal structure. Uh, we don't do that, but we I know that there are some wonderful things that go on in this congregation, I think as it should be because it comes out of the spiritual life, spiritual growth of the congregation. We have had uh, several ladies in this congregation since I've been uh, pastoring here who have uh, had their husbands taken to be with the Lord and some who have been widows for 10 years or so, have helped those who have recently been widowed as they go through and encounter the things that they're encountering in their life, struggling with various uh, aspects of grief, adjustment, finances, things of that nature. And I think that is is wonderful and tremendous because we live in a world and in a culture when the chances are that if you're married, uh, your husband is going to die four to six years before you do. And so there will be that period of time when you are alone without a husband and how are you going to handle all of the details of life uh, in those circumstances when probably for many, many years you have been dependent upon your husband for income, for paying the bills, for taking care of taxes and many, many things around the house and now suddenly uh, they're not there. And so it's, that's why the Scripture emphasizes that part of the role of a local congregation is to take care of the widows in the congregation and to make sure that that if they don't have family nearby who can take care of those responsibilities, then the local church can step in and minister in that particular area. But it's not just limited to that, it's that many of you older ladies who have had a lot of wonderful life experiences and are mature in your spiritual life have a wealth of practical wisdom that you have to help guide, advise younger women who are hitting circumstances perhaps and saying, I have no clue how to deal with this, I don't like it, I'm out of here. Well, wait a minute, just because your limited frame of reference doesn't... Uh, provide an immediate solution to the problem doesn't mean you the solution is to bail out. There are others who have gone through these kinds of circumstances before. So that's part of what we see here. The uh, uh, The older women are to uh, be teachers of good things. Uh, that, that really focuses on the application of doctrine in life circumstances. And then he, Paul expands upon that in the... In the next verse, that they admonish. Now this isn't the word nutheteo that we have that is normally translated admonish. It is more, uh, has more the idea that they are to, uh, teach them positively, uh, how to live, how to, uh, grow and advance, uh, in their spiritual life. It's the it's the verb form of that word I mentioned earlier that's translated uh, temperate and sometimes sober. It has to do with uh, teaching them to um, or training them to think in a certain way. So it's, this isn't a focus on teaching them doctrine, but application, how to think, how to handle the issues of life. And they are to... Uh, train the young women to love their husbands, and the word there isn't uh, the word for love isn't agape. It's philos. It's having that affectionate desire. Philandros is the uh, Greek word meaning to love one's husband. That they the older women. Enable the younger women help them train them to love their husbands and to love their children and I know that some women seem to have a extremely strong maternal instinct, and they just love to have children and love to train them and others just look at that little thing from outer space and don 't have a clue what to do with that with that infant and so they need uh, uh, some guidance and some help and some encouragement from those who have. Uh, gone through this before, and so this is a uh, an emphasis that the older women help and come alongside, train the younger women to love their children, and to be discreet. This is the idea of uh, it's safranos again. Here it's translated discreet. Earlier it was translated uh, uh, sober. It's sometimes translated temperate, but it's that idea of being self controlled and leading towards wisdom. Uh, Sophronas, They are to be discreet. They are to be chaste. This is the word hognos, meaning pure. That is, obedient to Scripture in their moral life. This was particularly significant in a Greek culture. Uh, they are to be chaste. They are to be homemakers. That's how that's translated. It's oikorgos in the Greek, a word that means to be to be involved workers at home. This isn't saying that Wives, you need to be homemakers and you can't work outside the home. We'll, we'll see a contrast to that in a minute. But that they are, the work they do in the home is to be done well, helping them understand how to carry out those domestic responsibilities. And there's an emphasis here that they're to be working at home rather than being busybodies getting involved in other people's business. Apparently, that was a problem in Greek culture at that time as it can be even at this time. And the reason for this is so the word of God will not be blasphemed. Now often people have an unusual view or an odd view of blasphemy. They think of it as use of profanity or curse words. But blasphemy is anything that dishonors the word of God because it is disobedient to the word of God. And so they are to live this way that God may not be blasphemed so that God will be honored and people will observe their life as a visible witness and testimony uh, to the grace of God. Then in verse 7 we read, Likewise, exhort the young men to be, and again we have that word, sober-minded in verse 6. It is the Word, uh, the another uh, verb form of that same root, meaning to be in a right or objective mind. Young men need to learn how to think objectively and need to think in terms of solid uh, solid information and on the basis of the Word of God. Exhort or challenge the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself, that is addressed to Titus as the pastor, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, and and in doctrine, that is, in teaching, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility, so that the pastor is exhorted here to make sure that his doctrine, his teaching is biblically sound and biblically correct. Uh, Verse 8, sound speech that relates to his teaching here in this passage, sound speech that it cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed so that he is accurately exegeting and explaining the word of God and dealing with objections and opposing viewpoints that are prevalent in the culture and in the community, that is, interacting with false ideas from the pulpit and correcting them so that people learn the truth as the truth and also learn it as it is juxtaposed to the erroneous ideas that have currency in the uh, contemporary culture uh putting down the arguments of those who are in opposition and then ha- and, and as a result of this people will have nothing evil to say to you now people are always going to say wrongly say evil things and judge pastors who are teaching the truth but it's not based on foundation it's not based on fact it's not based on evidence it's just based on a desire to attack someone and that sometimes sometimes happens now, this passage deals with these different elements within the uh, home, different people within the home. And before I finish the section dealing with uh, what the Scripture teaches about women, I want to contradict and counter the false view, the false caricature of Christian teaching on women that is often presented by those outside of the church. And often it is believed by some Christians that basically what the Bible says is that women need to be doormats to their husbands and they need to be, you know, basically barefoot and pregnant and always, uh, working in the home. So let's turn to, uh, Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31, the passage we read, uh, this morning in the, in the scripture reading. Proverbs is a book that focuses on the practical, uh, application of the wisdom of God's word. Now, wisdom in an Old Testament sense has to do with skillful living, living your life, applying the word of God so that what is produced is a life of beauty, a life that honors and glorifies God. Now, this passage begins in Proverbs 31, verse 10 with a focus on the uh, uh, life and the character and the quality of the competent woman. The word here in the Hebrew is the word chayil, which uh, means s- strength. It has to do with spiritual strength, strength of character. Sometimes it's translated brave, and sometimes it has the idea of competent. Then that's, I think, the strongest sense in this passage. This is the competent, successful Wife, the wife who fulfills that role of being an aider, an assistant, a helper for her husband. She recognizes her role within the team, the husband wife team uh, within the marriage. And begins uh, I always liked the way the King James uh, started this a godly wife who can find. I always thought that uh, in my life that's not, a, uh, that, that's not really not a question, it's a statement. A godly wife who can find my keys and find my wallet and find whatever it is I can't find. You know, some of you women can relate to that. It's, uh, but the question is who can find a competent woman? Because they're rare. It, it, it takes time to develop this, ladies. It's not something you have when you're 25 or 30. It's the result of years of studying the Word of God and applying it and letting God the Holy Spirit build and produce character in your life and not just focusing on spiritual truth but learning about the, all of the various details of life and responsibilities and activities that are involved in your life, areas where you are, have strengths and not trying to become strong in areas where you have no interest, where you have no, uh, no, no ability, but developing and maximizing your strengths to the glory of God so that it enhances uh, the home. Uh, the uh, writer says, Who can find a competent wife for her worth, her value, is far above rubies? You just can't measure it in dollars and cents. Uh, then there's a mention of the husband. Three times throughout this passage, her relation to her husband is mentioned. And as a re- result, this competent woman is one who is trustworthy. Her husband can rely upon her, can trust her. Now, sometimes that takes, can take time to develop. In any marriage, the marriage is the beginning when they come together at the wedding, not the end, and the couple learns to grow together to trust each other, to encourage each other, to not get too frustrated with each other when the other one makes mistakes or is a little slow, and sometimes women are a little more mature than men when they get married in their 20s, and it takes time sometimes for the man to catch up uh, maturity-wise. And so that trust is something that is built over time. Uh, the husband trusts her. Trust her in, in this passage. Trust her in many different areas in the home, uh, with the children, with the finances, with investments, with business. Uh, he she tr- he trusts her. Why? Because he knows that that she's committed to the team. She's committed to that Etsir mentality that they're working together towards a common. Uh, common goal, so the heart of the husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. He knows that she 's committed to the success of their uh, marriage and of their family. Uh, verse thirteen talks about her industriousness that she has a biblical or positive view of work and labor. she is not lazy she 's not restricted to just what we would call. Uh, domestic chores. Now, remember, this is written in a time. It's a rural environment. It's an agricultural economy. It's different today because we live in the post-industrial revolution period and the post-informational revolution period. And so things are different. There's work outside the home. This doesn't exclude that. But this was at a time when there wasn't uh, that much for either the husband or the wife to do outside of the home. There was some, but not uh, a tremendous amount. So in verse thir- uh, verses 11 and 12, we, uh, excuse me, 13 and 14, she seeks wool and flax. She's purchasing that which she needs as she uh, sews and as she weaves in order to produce the fabrics for the uh, clothes for her family. Uh, she is involved in shopping, and it, she looks for good deals, good bargains, finding uh, the uh, food in order to provide for the family. Uh, she, now, some of you aren't going to like this because you're not morning people, but she rises early while it is yet night. Don't argue with me. This is the Holy Spirit. You know, okay? Okay. Don't get on to me. I'm not saying you have to get up before the sun gets up, but this is, this is the example. She rises early while it is yet night and provides food for her household. Now contextualize this. Uh, if you're on the farm in an agricultural economy, everybody has to get out and start working the fields very early in the morning. And so the, the mom, the wife is up early. And she is preparing the meal so that when the husband and the kids get up and start doing all of their chores, because they're up early too, they have food to eat. And I've talked to uh, friends of mine who grew up on farms, and mom's getting up and making breakfast while they go out, and they were uh, getting the eggs from the chicken or doing various other chores, and then they would all come in and have breakfast together. Uh, this isn't saying, this is this is giving an example not a mandate. Okay, this is the, this is how this is, is functioning as a proverb. She rises while it is yet night because she realizes she does what she needs to do in order to accomplish the objective, and she provides food for her household and a portion for her maid She takes care of the those who are uh, helpers for the family. But she, her work is not limited to the home. She's involved in in investments, in business. She looks at real estate. She sees a field that is available for purchase. It's a good field. It's a good investment. And she buys it. She doesn't do it on a whim. She does it from knowledge and investigation and understanding what is good for the family. And from her profits in the investment, she then plants a vineyard. So this, again, brings income to the family. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She gets up and goes to CrossFit every morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm just being facetious. But this is uh, she's concerned about her physical strength so that she has the ability to carry out what she's doing. I think there's an application for us there today. We all tend to be a bit too sedentary. And we are not physically fit to have the energy to do everything that we need to do. She, but the emphasis here, she values labor. She is aggressive in her, uh, in her work and in building the wealth of the family. Uh, verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is good. What she produces in the home can be sold outside of the home, and she pursues excellence in her craftsmanship. Her lamp does not go out by night. So she gets up before the sun goes, uh, gets up, and she goes to bed after the sun goes down. She's industrious she, throughout the day. Uh, Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff—that's another term for a spindle on a, a spinning wheel—and her hand holds the spindle. That verse just emphasizes the fact that she's working at sewing. That doesn't mean ladies that y'all need to be sewing. Although you know, my mother sewed for years, my dad, when he was like when he was eight or nine years old, he would draw out patterns for my grandmother's dresses i I did not get that gene. <laughs> uh, then we see that she's involved with the community. Uh, in verse twenty, she extends her hand to the poor, she helps those who are less fortunate. Uh, yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy uh, verse twenty one She has prepared her family for adversity. In this case, it's snow during the winter. She has clothed them so that they'll be warm with expensive garments. She spared no expense in providing the clothing that they need to handle a a, a bad cold front, bad snowstorm. And so she has their protection and provision in mind. In verse 22, she makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She dresses well. Uh, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchant. She's involved in in, in commerce. So th- this isn't against a, a wife or a woman being involved in business, being involved, but it's all related to the family and the career. She's not doing this for her own personal gain and advancement and career building. She's doing this as, as an adjunct to her husband, who's the prime uh, leader in the home, and her career, everything that she's doing, is designed to build and strengthen the family, not to build and enhance her own career, her own reputation per se. Uh, she, uh, verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing, it's her character, her virtue that are emphasized here. So she shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. She has grown spiritually. Uh, she has uh, learned from experience, and she can give wise counsel and advice. And she is kind to others. On her tongue is the uh, law of kindness, She watches, verse 27, over the ways of her household so she administers and manages the household well. She does not eat the bread of idleness is simply a figure of speech for saying she's not lazy, she's not idle. Uh, Verse 28, as a result, her children uh, honor her, rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. And what he says is recorded in verse 29, many daughters have done well, but you excel all of them. And verse 30 then puts the emphasis on the real issue. Charm is deceitful. How a wife or a woman dresses can be deceitful. Her beauty is passing, but the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Because what drives this woman is her fear of the Lord, not her desire to be more educated, not her desire of gain for gain's sake, not her desire for reputation to be the best, but her desire to serve the Lord in her role as a wife and in her role as a mother. That's what drives her, her fear of the Lord. So the conclusion, verse 31, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. In other words, the evidence, the product of her life is the source of her honor and praise, but it is grounded upon her spiritual life and her fear of the Lord. So with this, this wraps up this look on the role of women. It's not this negative women. You just have to be a doormat for your husbands. But you're designed with a tremendous role to enhance, to, to aid, to help, to assist within that team that God has established as the core foundation of all society within the marriage and the family. And that's the role of the wife. Now, that is your role, no matter what the husband's like, whether he's excellent or whether he's not. And we will look next time at what the Bible says for the men, what their role, what their uh, responsibilities are. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this morning, to study them, to have our our understanding of, of uh, the role of wives and women enhanced and strengthened and focused by your word knowing that this is truth, that our, uh, our understanding of these things is not to be sh- shaped by misconceptions, by cultural misconceptions, but by the truth of your word. And that as you have stated from the beginning of Scripture to the end, that men and women both have a glorious role and responsibility and are honored as equally bearers of your image. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins that you might have eternal life. He did all the work. All that's required of each of us is simply to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the instant that we trust in him, we have eternal, we have everlasting life that can never be taken from us. Father, it's my prayer that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Father, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.